what we've been doing a bit. I had a very, I guess, hard week this week. Physically speaking, missed a lot of sleep, did a lot of driving. And uh, last night and this morning, I just sort of came apart. I was just bone-weary physically, and perhaps as a result of that in part, mentally and emotionally as well. I was just shocked this morning, and I kept thinking I should be working on my sermon, and uh, I didn't want to. I, I just wanted the day off. Marla says, why don't you call Larry? He's organized. He probably has one ready. <laughs> no, I won't do that to Larry. But uh, a lot of people are growing weary. And weariness is one of the signs of the time, or the times. We all know Matthew twenty four thirteen tells us, he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. And Matthew 10:22, from a little different context, says essentially the same thing. I'm not going to turn to those. You all know them quite well. And we understand that enduring to the end is necessary. But how do we get from here to there? And someone told me this last week. They were having some difficulties getting something done, and they said, well, God must just not want us to do what they were doing because we're having so much trouble. And I said, trouble you're having is just normal everyday stuff. But to them, it seemed like it was the end of the world almost. And God must not be with them because they were having difficulties. So I got reflecting on some of those things this morning, and uh, this sermon is a result, and I'm going to entitle it, uh, Weariness and Enduring. And that way, Shirley won't bug me after the sermon about what the title was, and weary me even further by having to come up with a title. I'm, that's just an inside joke between Shirley and I. She always wants a title, and I always forget to make one for my sermons. Let's go back to Exodus 17. We think we have problems. And sometimes I think of Moses. Here he had brought three and one half million, perhaps, roughly speaking at least, people out of Egypt. And every one of them, apparently, had a bad attitude. And it's just almost beyond belief how he was able to withstand everything that went on. Sometimes we deal just with ourselves or with our mate or our family or each, other's as, each other as brothers and sisters. And sometimes I look at it, we have a small congregation scattered around the country and around the world for that matter. And it's really not very many people by comparison to three and a half million. You know, two or three hundred people is not very many people. And yet sometimes it seems that there is no end of difficulty, problems, attitudes, troubles, and so on. Here in chapter 17 and verse 3 of Exodus, the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us? And our children and our cattle 
with thirst. They imputed the motive to Moses that he had figured this all out ahead of time. That all those people there in Egypt, as slaves, barely having enough to eat, that Moses had considered them and said, I know how I can kill all these people. I'll take them out in the desert, and I will make them die of thirst. They were imputing that motive to Moses, that he had preconceived this idea of how he would kill all of Israel. Now, wait a minute. He was in the land of Midian. He had a wife and family. He was there 40 years. His life was going on. He was completely separated from Israel. Why would he say, I think I'll go back to Egypt because there's three and a half million people there that I want to kill. But that was exactly the attitude that they had toward Moses. That he had this thing all pre-planned. It's amazing how attitudes can go south because just shortly before that, they had been coming out of Egypt with what? A high hand. Full of joy and singing and happiness, laughing, joking. <coughs> I don't think I can drink that roll of tape. And then the first sign of trouble, it went the other way. Well, Jethro, his father-in-law, came from Midian and uh, to visit. You know how it is when the in-laws come. Uh, Jethro looked at all that was going on, and he asked Moses, how's it going, Moses? And Moses recounted, thank you, Larry, recounted all the things that God had done to bring them out of Egypt. Moses still had his mind fixed on what God had done, even though the people were fixed on water and, and uh, later on quail instead of manna. They wanted what they wanted. They wanted it now. God, or Moses, did not talk about those things. He talked about all that God had done to bring them where they were. And then Jethro sat around like a father-in-law will do and watched Moses a little bit. And Moses got up early and sat himself down. And then the people lined up. I don't know how long the lines were, but with three and a half million people in camp, they could have been mighty long. So from the crack of dawn, perhaps, until dark, Moses sat there and tried to sort out the questions and the problems. His sheep came in my tent this morning. His camel spit in my wife's face this afternoon. We're out of water. I don't know what all the problems were, but they had all kinds of problems. And they brought them to him all day long. Chapter 18, verse 13 came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood by Moses from the morning to the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that you do to the people? Why do you sit yourself alone, and all the people stand by you from morning to evening? Get a life, Moses, his father-in-law said. All you do is sit here on your duff all day long and listen to complaints. And settle troubles. 
Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to, to me to inquire of God. And he had a logical answer to the problem. Just no solution. When they have a matter, they come to me. And I judge between one another. You know, they, they're arguing, they're fighting, they're gossiping, they're having difficulties with each other, so they come to me to settle all their problems. They hadn't learned to settle anything on their own. And I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Sounds like an in-law, doesn't it? Moses is justifying what he's doing, and his father-in-law says, this isn't good, Moses. You shouldn't be doing this. You will surely wear away. Wear is the good word for weary. You'll wear away both you and this people that is with you. Now, it was one thing to be sitting there settling problems all day long, and it was another thing to be standing in line all day long. That's wearying too. Some of us get frustrated even if we wind up at the end of the potluck line. You know, that doesn't take that long, but people hate to stand in lines, don't they? Some of those pushy New York people, when I was down in Miami, would actually come up in the supermarket line and literally shove you out of the way to go next. They did not want to wait their turn in line. Usually older Jewish women that outweighed me by two or three times, and they would just shove it. And I learned to shove back. Jethro says, now listen to me. Well, wait a minute. It says, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to perform it yourself alone. you just got too much to do, Moses. You can't do it. So he says in verse 9, hearken now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God shall be with you. And then he tells him something that I have never heard expounded or brought out before. Hearken. To my voice, I'll give you counsel, and God shall be with you. Be you for the people to Godward, that you may bring the causes unto God. I think he's saying there that he needed to teach them to walk with God. You can't do all of this by yourself. You must develop a relationship with God yourself. Now, that was not to go around Moses, but many problems can be solved if we go straight to God, can they not? In other words, be you for the people to Godward. Point them toward God. And you shall teach them ordinances and laws, and shall show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. He said, lay some of the responsibility back on the people. Now that fits 
with Matthew 18, where it says, go to your brother. Take somebody else if they don't listen. Finally, take it to the church. This is Jethro's advice to Moses, but it's also talked about in the New Testament. And that's the instruction we are given. The biggest problem with that, or one of the biggest problems, is we're basically just chicken-hearted. And we'd rather talk about someone than go to them. It's easier to gossip about them than it is to go to them and solve the problem. I don't want to get into all of that, but pride and vanity and ego is one of the primary reasons that when we do go, we can't solve the problem because we are right and they are wrong. And therefore, we do not go humbly and meekly, and the problem just gets worse instead of better. Because it's all their fault. So Moses, Jethro said, was to teach them the way of God. Meekness, humility. Then they could solve a lot of their own problems without coming to Moses. So teach them how to live. Teach them how to make their own relationship with God. That will take a lot of the problem away. And then there will be some residual things that must be handled and dealt with. So he had another suggestion. Verse 21, Moreover, you shall provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, not being heavily into money or payoffs or bribes like most officials are today, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds and rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons, and it shall be that every great matter, policy matters, in other words, instead of every little quarrel, be brought to you, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for yourself, and they shall bear the burden with you. If you shall do this thing, and God command you so, if God approves it, then you shall be able to endure. So Moses was facing something that was going to weary him to the place he could not function properly anymore. And Jethro says, if you'll follow this instruction, you'll be able to endure it. You'll be able to handle it. Sometimes we just need to look at things and say, what can I do differently instead of what I keep on doing over and over that isn't bringing answers and peace? How can I do things differently? Moses wasn't thinking it through. But sometimes someone from the outside can come in and see what the problem is and actually offer a solution. And it was a solution that worked for Moses. But that was something that must have been an incredible thing for him. To know that day after day after day, from the time he got up until he went to bed, he was going to hear nothing but griping and complaining and problems. Wouldn't that get to you after a while? How many days, weeks, months, years of that could you take? I think of Herbert Armstrong once in a while when I get to, to thinking about these things and how difficult it must have been. Now, he followed Jethro's advice to some degree because he did have men that were trained at college and so on to help him. But those men did not always, or were not always, what Jethro said here that they ought to be. 
And they themselves created problems for Mr. Armstrong, along with the weight and the press of the people. How do you handle an organization that has 150,000 people in it? I, I don't know how he found the energy and the strength to do that, except that unless he just simply had to go to God. Let's go to the book of Esther. I don't want to get too bogged down with too much detail as I just did with Moses, but uh, some of the problems that people faced. In this particular case, I can't even find Esther. I know it's right back here. I think you have problems. <laughs> My eye won't fall on it. It doesn't matter. And Esther 8, she was having difficulty because all of her people were being plotted against to be killed. Haman was going to make sure that all the people, all the Jews were killed. Well, she faced a situation where her family Everyone she knew, or was close to, and she herself would be facing death. You think you've got problems? What about this poor girl? And she could only see herself as a possible remedy for it. Figure that one out. We will be faced pretty soon with a lot of people dying on this earth, a lot of them are friends and relatives. We read the scriptures in the New Testament, the prophecies in the Old Testament, about how we will lose our families, and how we are to come apart and be separate, and God will deal with them. This becomes very difficult for some of us at some times, because we we're, know we're, we must follow God, we know we must put Him first, and yet we have sometimes our relatives that we have been very close to. Uh, their blood courses through our veins. And they say blood is thicker than water. And sometimes it's very hard to leave them behind and do what we know we need to do. Even friends in the world sometimes we have difficulty with. And what was Christ's answer to that? Let the dead bury the dead, come and follow me. That was not easy to do. Very, very difficult sometimes for people to do that. I've seen people leave the Feast of Tabernacles to go home and bury an unconverted member of the family. I would not have done it. It was a choice I've seen people make more than once in the years. But I just said, put them on ice till I get done or go ahead and bury them yourself. I'm here to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. may sound hard, but that's what Christ told them. It was a very hard saying, wasn't it? Very hard saying. When he tells us that we will have to leave farms and homes and our relatives to serve him, it is not easy. But that's what he told us. Put him first in every part of our lives. That can be emotionally wearying and frustrating and discouraging 
at times. We think we have troubles. Let's see if I can find the book of Job. Remember this story? I don't, I'm not going to recount the whole thing, but there in just a very short while, he lost all of his flocks and herds, his means of income. He lost his house. His children lost their houses. He lost his children. The only thing left to him were boils and his wife, who said, curse God and die. Real supportive. Job 31, verse 23. For destruction from God was a terror to me, and by reason of His Highness I could not endure. And he began to question himself. If I have made gold my hope, or have said to the fine gold, you are my confidence, if I rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gotten much, if I beheld the sun when it shined or the moon walking in brightness, and my heart had been secretly enticed or my mouth had kissed my hand, he began to question, why has all this come on me? Did I seek wealth? Was I seeking the wrong way? Just out of nowhere, it seemed, his whole world was turned upside down. Nothing went right. He could have very easily said, I think your wife, right, wife, I'll curse God and die. God can't be with me anymore. Look at all the troubles I'm having. God was just sitting on his throne watching the whole thing down there. He'd sick Satan on him in the first place. And then he sat back and watched Satan do his work. God had not rejected or forsaken Job whatsoever. But it seemed like everything Job did turned to sand. Nothing worked right. He lost everything he had. Wealth, health, children, family. And a bitter woman was all he had left when it was done. And he was sitting on boils at the time. That could be frustrating and discouraging, and you could become weary and unable to endure. We in the church, in some respects, are already facing some of the things Job Faced. God sat on his throne, saw us meandering along in Laodiceanism, spiritually proud, thinking we were okay, if we're in the church, we're all right, everything will be fine, our ticket is punched. And God said, I'll punch your ticket. And he sicked the devil on us. And we've been having nothing but trouble ever since. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. Ready to give up? Ready to quit? 
A lot of our brothers and sisters are giving up and quitting, brethren. Everyone in here knows somebody who has given up and quit. Who's gone back into the world. Who's looking after worldly things. Who's going back to worldly friends. Going back to the life they had. Basically just giving up on God. There's a lot of that going on right now. Job didn't give up. And personally, he probably suffered about as much as any human being has ever suffered on this earth, other than Jesus Christ. He said, how can I endure all that God lays on me? How can I do this? God's bigger than I am. He didn't really realize it was Satan doing it to him. And that God had sicked him on him. He didn't see what happened in heaven. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel 22, verse 13. Behold, therefore, I have smitten my hand at your dishonest gain, which you have made, and the blood which you has been in the midst of you. Where am I? Oh, okay. Verse 14. Can your heart endure? Or can your hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with you? I, the Eternal, have spoken it in and will do it. And I will scatter you among the heathen and disperse you in the countries. And will consume your filthiness out of you. God said, I am going to put the pressure on you until you are clean and white and pure. And have on spiritual, holy, white garments. Can you endure it? God asks the question, can we handle it? And you shall take your inheritance in yourself in the sight of the heathen, and you shall know that I am the Eternal. That's God's whole point right now, is letting us know He is the Eternal. And that's essentially the point He was making with Job. Job began to think that God was not much greater or better or higher than he was. That God was a better man than he was, in other words. And God had to show him through all of this, I am way ahead of you, Job. Way, way ahead of you. Where were you when Leviathan was made? Where were you when the stars were formed and the earth made? And finally, Job said, oh, now I see. That whole thing was just to get the point across to the man. And the only thing God is trying to do now is get a point across to us as men of what He is doing and what He wants us to be. You know what the problem is? We're hard-headed. We're hard to be entreated. We don't listen very well. And as a result, the pressure stays on. We're not yet seeking Him with our whole heart. I'll guarantee you that. Psalm 6. 
Psalm 6. Here's David. Here's his prayer. Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, neither chasten me in your hot displeasure. Don't be angry with me, God. I'm doing the best I can down here, David says. Now, this is in the beginning of Psalms. Psalms are prophetic. The Psalms are. They start out with where we are today in the end in glory. There is a progression throughout the Psalms. Have mercy upon me, O Eternal, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul also is also sore vexed. But you, O Lord, how long? How long is this going to last? How long will it go on? Can I endure it? Like Habakkuk, how long, O Lord? And it's the same emotion that you and I sometimes have. Return, O Eternal, deliver my soul. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who shall give you thanks? I'm about to die. I've had it down here. I can't take any more, David said. What good of am I going to be dead? I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. My eye is consumed because of grief. It waxes old because of all my enemies. It seemed like he was just to be set upon from every direction. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Eternal has heard the voice of my weeping. The Eternal has heard my supplication. The Eternal will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. He saw an answer coming. Sooner or later, he said, God is going to deliver me out of all this. But in the meantime, he says, I just lay here in bed and cry. My tears are wetting my pillow. You ever feel that way? I'm sure you do. I do at times. Psalm 69. As you progress through this book, you still see problems and difficulties all the way through. Chapter 69. Save me, O God, for the waters are come into my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overthrow me. I'm in mire. I didn't look up the Hebrew there, but I have a feeling it could have meant uh, manure. I've just, I'm up to here in manure, God, and the waters are overflowing me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dry. I've cried to the point my throat's so dry I can't even cry anymore. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Now, this is also a prophecy of Christ, who suffered more than any human being. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They that would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away, or didn't steal. O God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hid from you. That's not a problem with the type of Christ, because he had a lot of sins laid on him. Not his own, but yours and mine. They were pretty heavy. How would you, I mean, it's, isn't it hard enough sometimes when you know you've done wrong or thought wrong 
to go before God and your conscience bothers you and you feel really bad about it, and how can God forgive me? And that's just your sins. What if you had the weight of everyone's sins laid on your back and had to deal with that conscience? Because they were all piled on top of him. We have to deal with sin that we do not, or with uh, with uh, difficulties that we do not even deserve. First Peter two goes into that, verse nineteen. That even things that we are not guilty of are laid on us sometimes. Don't people accuse you of things you haven't done or haven't thought? I mean, apart from self-deception, there are things sometimes where. Accusations are made that really are not true. Those are even tougher, aren't they, than the ones where it is true? The ones that are true, well, yeah, I guess I have to admit that's right. You better lie your way out of it. But what, boy, can we ever get our clams steamed when somebody accuses us of something we didn't do? Boy, can we get irate. Christ endured all of that, and he didn't deserve a bit of it. And God said that that's acceptable to him when we have that attitude. Let's go to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4. I thought I had problems until I started reading some of these scriptures. Man, I don't have any problems. Mine are very small compared to these. 2 Timothy 4. Here he's giving advice to a young minister, Timothy, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. There's a lot of that going on in the church today. A lot of strange things going around. And according to a lot of people, I teach some of them. But there's a lot of it going on. They shall turn away their ears from the truth, turn to fables, but watch you in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of your ministry. He said, endure all this that is going to happen. Don't give up, don't quit, don't be weary. Put up with it, deal with it. And move on. Paul knew things would be tough for Timothy, and they were. Notice Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Here I want... Oh, let's start in verse 33. He's speaking of the faithful here. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness... And here were people that we've been reading about today. Moses, Esther, David, many others we could talk about. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The list goes on and on and on. But these people, through faith, subdued kingdoms. Isn't that basically what Esther did? Brought forth righteousness. 
under extremely difficult situations like Job. Obtained promises like Jacob who hung on all night long till he got a promise of blessing. Stopped the mouths of lions. There's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Quenched the violence of fire. Escaped the edge of the sword. Almost died, but escaped. Out of weakness were made strong. We're weak, aren't we? But out of that weakness, we can be made strong. Waxed valiant in fight. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens, like the Philistines that David ran off. Women received their dead raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection, that is, the first resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will surely hurt me, is the way that ought to read. Words can hurt us. And they had to endure cruel mockings, scourgings. Yes, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. There will be some of us who go to jail in this end time. They were stoned. That's not a good day. They were sawed in half. Another very bad day. Were tempted. Were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. And this wasn't fine Italian leather. This was just skin the thing and wrap it around you type of thing. Being destitute... That is, no money, no food, nothing. Afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Found a rock to crawl under for shelter. This is what people did in order to obtain a better resurrection. Of whom the world was not worthy. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise even to this day. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect or mature. And even Paul, who wrote this, is now a victim of what he wrote about. Because he has not ascended to heaven he is waiting for the resurrection for us. He's in the same category as those he wrote about. Do you realize even God gets weary? Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1. You'll be interested to see what God gets weary with. What causes God's weariness? Anyone have a clue what God gets weary about? Isaiah 1. Here let's go to verse 14, right to the heart of the matter. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. 
and are a trouble to me, I am weary to bear them. I think in two ways. He became weary with the way we were keeping the feast, going to places that we might select so we could party and have a good time rather than coming to worship him. So the way in which we worship the feast or kept the feast was wrong. And we've come to see that even when we kept the feast, we're an irritation and a weariness to God. Because they were our feasts, not his feasts. People keep a Sabbath on Sunday. That wearies God because that's not his holy day. And if you keep the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover a day or two or three late, that's not his holy day. And the whole thing is a weariness to him because people for their own reasons have postponed that which he set in the heavens through the heavenly bodies. So I set you a moon up here. I set you the sun and the earth. I made these cycles, and you're supposed to follow them of spring, summer, winter, and fall, or fall and winter. And you won't even do it. Baby, what is a man to do? What is a God to do? When you won't even keep it on the right day, and then you won't do it the way I say. He gets weary of that. Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah 15. Verse 5. For who shall have pity upon you, O Jerusalem? Be it physical Israel or be it spiritual Israel. Or who shall bemoan you? Or who shall go aside to ask, how are you doing? Who cares? Who really cares? Does anybody out here in this world really care what we're going through? Or what we're about to go through? You've forsaken me, says the Eternal. You are gone backward. Therefore will I stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am weary with relenting. Weary of putting up with you, God says. Is it any wonder he spewed the church out of his mouth? He just got weary of dealing with our pride and vanity and ego and selfishness and self-righteousness. And he spewed us out. And nobody gives a rip, do they? We're a laughing stock to the whole world. Worldwide Church of God, oh, I remember that. What happened to you boys and girls? And who cares? Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. Now, God never gets weary with his life. He gets weary with us. Isaiah 46.1. Baal bows down. Nebo stoops, their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaden, they're a burden to the weary beast. Now God is going to make a figure of speech here, a metaphor. 
They stoop, they bow down together, they could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. God says, you're just like Baal and this world and its worship. It's just like an animal that's loaded down with a heavy weight, big burden put on it, more than its poor little legs can stand. And then told, follow me, you know, as you tug it along with a rope. Hearken to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are borne by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. And even to your old age I am he, and even to hoary hairs will I carry you. I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry, and will deliver you. That reminds me of a scripture in the New Testament which says, Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. God said, I'm just like a donkey that you have just piled stuff on until I can barely stand up. I'm so, it's so heavy and so wearying, but I'm going to carry you all the way through. It doesn't make any difference how heavily loaded I am. I can take it, and I will take it, and I will deliver you. There's a lot of encouragement in this little metaphor here. So we wearied him. But he says he will never forsake us nor leave us. He'll carry us all the way through. Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28. Here he's talking to the drunkards of Ephraim and Verse 1, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, and Ephraim, firstborn, firstfruits, represents the church here, I think. And the church is like a fading flower. Ever see the last rose of summer? The frost catches it and the leaves, the, the corners of the flower all fold up and become ugly and drawn in. Verse 2, Behold, the Eternal has a mighty and strong one, as a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing, shall cast down to the earth with the hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet. And this applies to the church as well as to physical Israel, ultimately. Verse 9, Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn away from the breasts. Precept has to be on precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. That's the way we're sorting this out, isn't it? It's here a little, there a little, through the Scriptures. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. Brethren, the answers to our problems and the difficulties in the church are all within the pages of this book. Here a little and there a little. People won't read it. People will not put their heads in this book and find the answers. But God tells us the answers to all these things. Hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. That's direct Instruction to the ministry. Get your head in this book. Find the answers. We found a lot of them in here, haven't we? A lot of the answers we found. 
And I think God has shown us more answers in this book than most people in the church today have. Because they have not stuck their head in here and found the answers. But they're all there. But this is how he, he tells you, if you're weary, here's the rest. Here's where to find the answers. You know, Job didn't know where his trouble came from. That is a direct disadvantage, or a distinct disadvantage. Most of the church today has no idea why we are going through what we are going through. That is a distinct disadvantage. You people basically understand. That is a distinct advantage. To know why. Because if you know why, then there's a possibility you can do something about it. We know we must get rid of vanity and ego and self-righteousness. Laodiceanism. And we know we must walk in humility and meekness before God. And seek Him with our whole heart. That is the answer to the problem. But we're still going to have difficulties. Most of ours at this point is not physical, is it? Some of it is in terms of finances or health or various things of that nature. But what is the greatest difficulty we have? Isn't it mostly mental and emotional? That's where the real fight comes. I've heard people many say, times say, I'd rather take a physical beating than this emotional beating I'm going through. Emotional and mental difficulties cannot be discredited. They're heavy, they're hard, they're difficult. James 1, verse 12. James 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the eternal has promised to them that love him. Yes, we're enduring a lot of temptation, a lot of difficulty, a lot of trials, a lot of troubles. But there's a crown of life laid up. Eternal life. With peace, happiness, and security. And no problems like we have today. So you have to assess, is it worth it? And a lot of people lose that vision. They lose sight of why we're going through all of this. And as a result, they give up. We can't give up. Without vision, we perish. But if we understand what is at stake, then we have courage and strength to face the difficulties we're facing. Brethren, we are not facing any troubles that are not common to mankind everywhere and always have been. It's happening to me is the reason it seems so bad. But Paul even said, you haven't faced anything that isn't common. And we've read some things here today already that are a whole lot worse than any of us have even begun to go through. Now, we're being chastened. I have no doubt of that in the light of Hebrews 12. What does he tell us to do? Sit in a corner and eat worms? 
The answer to the problem is given here in Hebrews 12. Well, we read part of the answer in Isaiah 28. Go to his word and find some answers. But here in Hebrews 12, he's talking about chastening here in verses 5, 6, and 7. He says, you've not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. We think we have to work so hard at it. He said, we haven't sweat blood yet. Verse 5, you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to children. My son, despise not you the chastening of the eternal. We're not to despise what God is doing to the church today and to us within that church. In fact, by the time you finish reading this passage, you'll learn that you ought to actually rejoice in what we're going through. And there are scriptures to that effect. He said, don't faint when you're rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If God loves you, he says, you're going to have trouble. That sounds strange, doesn't it? What about your children? If you just let them have the attitudes they want to have, you don't change their attitudes through discipline or taking things away or talking to them and working with them. They'll never learn to have right attitudes, and they'll go through their adult life not being able to control their moods and attitudes because you didn't make them do it when they were little. And if you didn't do it when they were really little, now when they reach teenage and hormones and everything else enter the picture, it just makes it worse. And it's far more difficult, and it would have been so much better had you attended to it when they were young. And you might still have problems when they're teenage, but the teenage problems would not be as bad, and the relationship would not be nearly so hard to maintain. So God treats us as little children, and if He loves us, He's going to scourge us. He's going to chasten us. That's what He's doing to the church. So today we can bask in God's love, knowing that He cares. He loved Job tremendously, or he would not have put Job through what Job went through. And when it was all said and done, and Job's attitude straightened out, and Job understood what God was trying to get across to him, they got along famously. And we're like little children who want to do this and this and this, and God says, no, it's better if you do this, this, and this, and we have a problem. Because we don't agree with our Father in Heaven about what we ought to do and the attitude we ought to have. So what does a parent do? God has bent us over His lap, and He is wailing away on us. Until something changes. You're not done until the attitude changes. And it is attitude that God was concerned about with you and me. An attitude of pomposity and self-righteousness and we're doing everything okay. Pride and spiritual vanity is an attitude he can't handle. He says, your parents sometimes do it, you know, just so you'll shut up. 
so they can have peace. That's basically what he's saying in verse 9. For they verily for a few days chastens us after their own pleasure, but God has higher aspirations in mind. He's doing it for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. The whole object of this chastening is that we might become holy. Humble, meek, sweet, serving, giving, loving, kind to God and to man. But God understands, verse 11, now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. I can never remember in my life when my dad would bend me over and work me over that it seemed joyous. I thought I might die right then and there a few times. But afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. To those who get the point. To those who change their attitudes. Now, you'll get a stubborn kid now and then that you can pound on their behinds and they just set their jaw and get harder and they are going to do what they want to do and think what they want to think no matter how much you beat on them. Somehow, you have to change their attitude until they become sweet and lovable. I think that's what parents miss so often. Well, I did my duty. I hit him. I did my duty. I told them they couldn't. They were restricted for a week. But the kid's attitude's still lousy. You're not done until the attitude is sweet and loving and responsive. Then you're done for the moment. And brethren, God is not going to let up on us until we are meek and humble and sweet and willing. That's the way he is. He's a good parent. The object is not to get the kid to shut up and give you peace. The object is to teach the child to control his or her attitude. Not to pout, not to whine, not to rebel, not to talk back. Job did a little talking back to God and to his friends. God just left the pressure on. Till the man was totally meek and humble. So the solution then, verse 12, Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Don't sit around and whine and feel sorry for yourself. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame, and we've been pretty lame spiritually, be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Many people today, we're walking spiritually lame. Instead of straightening their feet out and walking straight, they've walked away from the way. They've walked out of the path. That's not the answer. Let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men. And holiness without which no man shall see the eternity. And then he talks about not getting bitter, not becoming weary and embittered like Esau did. I won't go into more of that for sake of time, but you know the story. Proverbs 3.11, I don't have time to turn to, but it says, Don't be weary 
of God's chastening. Same thing that Paul is quoting here in Hebrews 12. We know the story in Mark 4. I'll refer to it here briefly. Mark 4. You remember the story about how the, the seed were broadcast here and there, and some fell on stony ground, some fell in rocks, some fell in good soil, and so on. I want to pick it up here in verse 17. Here is speaking of some, well, verse 16. These are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises, trouble comes, in other words, for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. Any trouble we have as a result of obeying God can easily offend us. Sometimes we can take a lot if it's non-religious. Because we like somebody or we love them or whatever, so we can take a lot of punishment from them. But if it comes from God, I'm out of here. That's the way a lot of people are doing right now today. First Corinthians 13. First Corinthians 13. You know what this chapter is about? What is one of the qualities of truly godly love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Speaking of the love of God, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If we're having trouble enduring, maybe we don't have the kind of love God wants us to have, and we need to be praying and seeking His love. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. 2 Thessalonians 1. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God, speaking of Paul and the ministry, for your patience and faith, in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. You think we're the only ones that have gone through trouble? Paul spoke to the church at Thessalonica and said, We know you're going through all kinds of troubles and tribulations. See, what's happening to us is not just us. What is happening to us has been common to God's people from Adam until today, and it will be until the world tomorrow. Then it will be solved. Second Timothy 2. Second Timothy 2. Here I want verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And the things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit you to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Paul recounted to him all the troubles that he had had. He said, use these examples for others, because they need the encouragement. You therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 
endure hard times, hard knots, difficulties. No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. We should have one goal, one purpose. That is to serve the Lord God with all our hearts, minds, bodies, and souls. And we should not entangle ourselves with the people of this world, the things of this world, and the ways of this world. We should come out, be separate, and be apart. What if you were a general in an army and you had these soldiers that didn't show up to fight every day? They decided they'd lay in the foxhole and sleep today. Or they decided they'd sneak out and go to town and party all night and not be worth anything to fight the next day. Or whatever. Rather than putting their whole heart in the effort to win the war that they were involved in. In armies around the world, it has always been that if you were, if you defected or left the lines, you were simply shot or before guns had your head cut off with a sword. That's how they handled it. Well, he says, don't entangle yourself with the affairs of this life. Let's get our eyes direction they ought to go. Endure hardness as a good soldier. Now we're getting down close to the end of this. Uh, let's go to John 6. John 6. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 26. John 6, 26. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the food which perishes. We're not here to become rich. We're not here to become wealthy. We're not even here necessarily to labor for our daily bread. We ask God for that. And one way or another, we will survive. He will not allow us to starve to death or die of thirst. <coughs> he didn't even let those murmuring, complaining Israelites in the desert die of thirst, did he? But he wants us to get our goals and our purposes straight. Yes, you have to work. And Paul had to deal with people who were lazy. And he said, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. If people won't work, don't feed them. Sounds hard, but... Hey, you got to work. But the goal and the purpose is not to labor for physical food. Labor not for the food which perishes, but for that meat which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For him has God the Father sealed. We have to get our goals and our purposes right if we're going to endure all the hardness and the difficulty that we're going to go through. James 5. James 5.
Alright? Let's pick this up in verse 11. James 5, verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. If you give up, you can't find real happiness because happiness is in God. So, real happiness comes in enduring whatever we must go through. You have heard of the patience of Job. We've read of that today, in fact. And have seen the purpose or the end of the eternal. What his goal and purpose was. What did he do with Job? He sicked the devil on him directly, took away everything he had, left him absolutely destitute, no visible means of support, help gone, and wife complained. Pretty tough times, I'd say. But he was patient through all that. And you've seen what God did, that the eternal is very pitiful, or full of pity, and of tender mercy. When it was all said and done, and Job got his attitude straight, and his understanding of who was who and what was what right, God's purpose was accomplished in Job. And they had an excellent relationship after that. But something had to be squared away. And Job patiently endured everything that the devil, from God, laid upon him. And it turned out for good. And God's purpose in the end was to be full of pity and mercy. He tells us in Psalm 119 over and over and over again that his mercy endures forever. He repeats it so many times we ought to get the point. He will never leave us nor forsake us. But he sure will lay a lot on us, won't he? We've seen many examples of that today. Now let's see some encouragement here. Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. Our king, Jesus Christ, will rule in righteousness, and princes under him, kings and priests, us, will rule in judgment. And a man shall be as in a hiding place from the wind. Did you feel it this morning, that cold wind blowing here in this area? You wanted a place to hide from the wind, didn't you? And it may be a little cool in here, but it's not near as bad as it is out in that wind where it's blowing. You always want a place to hide. And a covert from the tempest or the storm. As rivers of water in a dry place as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Ever been out in the desert in the heat? Felt that bearing down on you and you just look for a big rock you could get behind to have a little shade. Because it's a lot cooler in the shade than it is out in the hot sunlight. The eyes of them that, shall, that see shall not be dim, and the ears of them that hear shall hearken. God is going to solve the problems. I think that's a prophecy for the end time church as well as for people in the millennium. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, that the everlasting God, the eternal, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is weary? There is no searching. Or no, you don't find an end to his understanding. 
He gives power to the faint. We can go to God when we're faint, we're weary, we're tired, and get power. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. You know, sometimes older people think, I just don't have the strength and the energy to do anything anymore. But things are going to get so bad, even the young are going to feel like they can't do it either. But they that wait upon the eternal shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. God is going to give power and strength and encouragement to us so that everything will work. Chapter 50. Chapter 50 of Isaiah. I want verse 4 here. Isaiah is speaking. He says, The Eternal has given me the tongue of the learned. Now, he wasn't a learned man. But through God, he had that. That I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakens morning by morning. He wakens my ear to hear as the learned. Now to me, Isaiah certainly was not speaking out of school when he said he had that ability. God gave him the capacity to say the right thing at the right time to encourage and to strengthen people. And I have found that if I go to Psalms or to Isaiah, I can find encouragement and strengthening there quicker than I can most anywhere else in the Bible. David had that capacity, and Isaiah had that capacity, to give us strength to move on. Isn't it encouraging when you're down And someone knows just what to say to help you through it and over it. That's a gift I think that we should all pray for. That God would give us the capacity to help each other when we're down. Isaiah certainly had it and even said so. Jeremiah 31. Here I want verse 23. Jeremiah 31, verse 23. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, as yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof, when I shall bring again their captivity. The Eternal bless you, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all the cities thereof together, husbandmen and they that go forth with flocks, For I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Upon this I awaked and beheld, and my sleep was was sweet to me. I look forward to that time when God turns us around with us. And instead of crying as David did and lying awake at night worrying about our difficulties and our problems and so on, our sleep will be Sweet. There's nothing much better than sweet sleep. 
All right, let's go to Galatians 6, 9. Oh, I have two more scriptures and we're done. Galatians 6 and verse 9. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. God says, don't give up. It takes time to produce a crop. You know, you can be impatient and you plant the seeds and three days later you're out there saying, why don't you grow? I'm ready to eat. But the seedling has to grow. And then the ears or the pods or whatever have to come on. And over a period of time, then they're green. They're still unpalatable. It takes time to produce a crop. But if you're patient... Eventually, the peaches are sweet and the corn is golden and ripe and the peas pods are full and you can go out and harvest. God said, don't be weary. Don't give up. If you're patient and you don't weary in well-doing, eventually we're going to reap. God's promises cannot be broken. The Scripture cannot be broken. Galatians 6, 9 cannot be broken. If we don't give up and we endure to the end, we shall be saved. Let's close this in Psalm 30. Psalm 30. Here David is pouring his heart out to God. Psalm 30, I will extol you, O Eternal, for you have lifted me up and have not made my foes to rejoice over me. Remember the plaintive wail he had earlier about how troubled troubled his life was there in Psalm 6 and wherever else we read? And I didn't read a lot of them that David wrote about all the troubles he was in. O Lord my God, I cried to you and you have healed me. O Eternal, you have brought up my soul from the grave. You have kept me alive, that I should not go down to the pit. Sing unto the Eternal, O you saints of His, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. We have a chance to do that right now in a few minutes. We'll rise and sing the final hymn today. We'll sing a song, I'll bet you, right out of David's handwriting. For his anger endures but a moment. It's all going to pass. Remember that one we read a week or two ago about how the woman prevailed and then as soon as the baby was born, you forget all the pain because a baby, a new life is brought into the world. Same type of thing he's saying here. His anger endures but for a moment. In, in, in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. If we'll endure the spiritual night that we're going through, joy will come in the morning. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, the sun comes back up. God has made that cycle on purpose. And he says in Lamentations that we have a fresh start every morning. We have trouble believing that. We have our conscience problems with our sins and our faults and so on. We need to pray God will forgive our sins and help us with our weaknesses. 
But he gives us a fresh start every day. The sun comes up. And in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. I wonder if there's not something here about the seven churches of Revelation. Verse 2, could that be Ephesus? I cried to you and you have healed me. Ephesus had its difficulties. It lost its first love. What about verse 3 in Sardis? O eternal, you have brought up my soul from the grave, from the pit. Sardis is dead, but a few names remain. What about in verse 6? Is that Laodicea? And in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. I have my ticket to the place of safety in the kingdom of God. I won't be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. You did hide your face, and I was troubled. Could that be Laodicea again? Don't we have many, many scriptures we've read in the prophecies which say God has turned his face from us right now? That he will turn it back. I cried to you, O eternal. There's the answer to the problem. When God's face is turned away from us, what do we do? We cry to God. Daddy, 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 help me. I cried to you, O eternal, and unto the eternal I made my supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I shall go down to the pit? We read that earlier, same type of thing. What good does it do for me to die? What good does it do for me to die spiritually? After all we've gone through, would we give up and allow ourselves to die, not endure? Shall the dust praise you? My dead body going to lie in the grave and sing Hosanna to God? I don't think so. Shall it declare your truth? No, it takes a live human being. It takes one alive spiritually to declare his truth. Hear, O Eternal, and have mercy upon me. Lord, be you my helper. David knew where to turn when life was tough. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. To the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent, O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. David had troubles. David knew what to do. He turned to God and he turned to God with his whole heart. And his problems were ultimately solved. He will be king over all Israel in the kingdom of God because he endured unto his end. And we have to do the same thing. The he who endures to the end shall be saved. We may put up with trouble and persecution and difficulty and personal weaknesses, discouragements, poverty, all kinds of problems we may put up with. But if we are not wearied and we wait, we shall be saved.